word, go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, you can't get fooled again. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I am Ben Kissel. Uh, we're doing something special here on Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. Every week, I want to just get together and, uh, and read listener emails. It'll be sort of like um, FDR's fireside chats. But in this political climate, we'll call them the dumpster fire chats because I think that's a little bit more appropriate. And on the next episode, we have Molly Nephilon. We are going to get into what's been happening the past week in American politics. Uh, so much to talk about with Trump's immigration plans, uh, his current Muslim ban uh, that's happening. We'll hit on both sides, and, and uh, I think it'll be a fascinating conversation, and I, and I cannot wait. Uh, to talk more about that in detail, but I'm really excited to get uh, um, to get to some of these emails and hear what people have to say. The first email is coming from Johanna Rodriguez, and uh, I think her subject is absolutely perfect for what's currently happening in uh, in America. The subject is simply, "What the fuck do I do now?" What the fuck do I do now? And that's a question that millions of Americans are answer, uh, asking themselves. Millions of uh, people overseas are asking themselves, what the fuck do I do now that America is no longer the beacon of hope, is no longer the land of immigrants, is no longer the great refuge for uh, people seeking political asylum that it should be and that it once was? What the fuck do I do now? She starts her email off. Hey, guys, what the fuck? Who the fuck is going to be banned next? I'm Mexican, born here to teen immigrants, and now we now work with unaccompanied, undocumented kids from Central America. Their reactions to getting elect, their reactions to Trump getting elected was one of complete defeat. What the fuck am I supposed to say about the news of Muslims being banned at airports? We're not safe. I'm not safe. I listen to you guys in your podcast to take my mind off the off all the fucked up stories of rape, murder, kidnapping, and torture that my teenagers. That my teenagers, that teenagers, these are children that my teenagers tell me about uh, that's going on. You know, I mean, so she says, I'm so thankful for your conversations about dreamers, but they're not the only ones who didn't have a choice about coming here. I'm terrified, not only for my friends who get to obtain their PhDs due to the Dreamers Act, not only for my undocumented clients, but now for my family and my father, too. My father is only a resident. I've been trying to get him to take the citizen the citizenship test and now fucking what i suppose i don't have a question for you to answer on air but satan fucking knows who i'm supposed to turn to now off to fucking puke on myself johanna rodriguez absolutely i you know that this is the sentiment that people are feeling all over the country they're confused they're angry um they are uh feeling uh you know disempowered uh disenfranchised and disliked by the nation uh, that they came to, uh, they braved uh, God knows what to get here, uh, whether it be financial um, or, or, or physical cost. It is not easy being an immigrant in this nation. And uh, your sentiment is felt, and, and my heart goes out to you. And we're going to do our best to keep a spotlight on the dreamer situation. I know Steve Bannon apparently wants to get rid of DACA. And Reince Priebus, the, the, the chief of staff for Donald Trump, wants to keep it. So now we're in another strange situation where I agree with Reince Priebus, the man who I always say uh, sounds like uh, it sounds like a bone you sprain when you're skiing stoned. 
Oh, I sprained my prebus. It doesn't sound good. So DACA is on the line. And these are just real things now. And Steve Bannon is in Donald Trump's weird, floppy, dumber than Dumbo-like ears. And that, to me, is truly terrifying. Um, all right, the next email comes from Charlotte. Uh, she says, this is not a blurb, but uh, she still hopes that I read it. And Charlotte, I will read it. Uh, thank you so much for sending it in, uh, sending in the email. All right. On September 11, 2001, she writes, on September 11, 2001, I was the last one awake in our apartment in Beijing, China, watching TV. She was flipping through channels. She says she passed the Japanese station, which was just showing video of a burning skyscraper. I didn't think anything of it, thought it might be a, some movie, so I just kept on flipping. Nothing interested me, so I went to bed. Before I fell asleep, there was a phone call from a, Sri from a Sri Lankan friend and a classmate telling me to turn on the news. Before I even made it out of my room, the phone rang again, and an Israeli friend and classmate asking me if I had heard what happened. New York has been attacked. I woke up my family, and we watched the news for hours, making phone calls and fielding them deep into the night. We didn't get much sleep. In the morning, we decided to go to school where my, where my mother also worked. Our school wasn't an, wasn't an American school. We were truly, truly international. In my graduating class of about 20, there were two Americans, including myself, aside from the aforementioned Israeli and Sri Lankan. We had a Finn or two, a Swede, a Korean, Japanese, Australian, etc., 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 an Indonesian Christian, a kid from Brunei, Muslim, a Baharanian, also Muslim, and they, were, and they were all there for me that day, all of them, every single one. They cried with me. We held each other. They lost something, too. To most of the world, America is, was, I don't know, a shining beacon of hope, a great imperfect experiment in liberty and freedom. And while this was not the reality of America for many, many Americans, it was how we were viewed, a nation of immigrants, the great American dream. This, was, this wasn't supposed to happen in America. I heard those words over and over and over again. We all heard that day. Every single person at that school, that entire school, representing six continents and countless nations, was unified in grief. Students, teachers, staff, admin, every single person. September 11th brought my international community together in a way I can never, never forget. That beautiful community of human beings wrapped their arms around us Americans that day with love. I will be forever grateful. I will always remember. She goes on. Our new president used that, that world unifying day to push our fellow humans away. I will never forget that. We are all at the end of the day human. Much love, Charlotte. Great point, Charlotte. Great point. And, you know, we go back and we talk about 9-11 uh, and what happened in 2001. And the, the world was on our side. And we had a great opportunity at that time to prove the world right about what they thought of us. And I think our foreign policy, I think we, uh, you know, I think we missed out on an opportunity to really become a better America because of the foreign policy that was passed following the horrific events of 9-11. And of course, if you get a chance uh, to really understand the impact of that day, if you get a chance, listen to the last podcast on the left, 9-11 episodes, specifically the first one, uh, which has many phone calls from people on the streets and uh, some of the final calls from the victims of that horrible terror attack. Um, it's a powerful day. And, uh, and um, it, is, it was unfortunate, to say the least, when Donald Trump used that day to divide us 
as opposed to unite us? So great question. Uh, well, not even a question. Great statement. And uh, I really appreciate you writing in, uh, Charlotte. Um, all right. Well, let's move on a little bit here. Now, this guy, he wrote in. His name is Matt Clemente. He sounds like a baseball player who's using steroids. You're on the juice, Clemente. I know you're on the juice. And that's fine. I need some of that as well, as a matter of fact. I could, I could use a little bit of a steroid, if you know what I mean. Um, all right. Matt Clemente wrote. We, now this, and this is referring to um, the episode I did with Travis Irvine, uh, the mediaite reporter. And Travis was telling people to run for office, you know, get out there and you can do it, you know. And uh, Matt Clemente wrote in with the subject matter, we all can't run for office. And this was a great email, so thank you so much for sending it. Um, basically, he says, your guest Travis Irvine urged all of us to run for public office, especially millennials. He stated that all American citizens can do it. This, sadly, is not true. The Hatch Act prevents plenty of civil servants from being able to run for office. Those of us who work for the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security cannot run for office. While your head may run in one way, in one direction or another, the Department of Defense is the largest employer of federal scientists and engineers, making up almost half of all federal civil servant scientists. I am one myself. A friend of mine who works for the Navy was hoping to run for office a few years ago and discovered that we're unable to seek office. Now, I'm, I'm sure plenty of people wish there were more scientists and engineers running for office, but sadly, a huge chunk of us, roughly 750,000 DOD civilian employees alone, are denied the opportunity. It's a bit bizarre because plenty of civilians who work for the DOD are proud Americans that do want to help America succeed. There are plenty of other departments and agencies with restrictions, mostly in defense and intelligence, which can seem to make sense for high-level individuals. But when you're just a bottom-of-the-rung scientist, engineer, admin assistant, the guy in shipping, the guy working in the cafeteria on base, etc., it seems a bit much. Sadly... The Hatch Act is rarely a topic of discussion in regards to those educated Americans who simply cannot run for office without giving up our jobs, which often isn't necessary for local offices. According to it, uniformed soldiers can run for office, but then other rules in the military, like codes of conduct, actually prevent them. Oh, well, I'd love to hear your opinion on this aspect uh, and the Hatch Act in general preventing even more people from running for office if you've got the time. Well, we do have the time, Matt. Uh, so I did a little research. So the Hatch Act, it, 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 was, it uh, came to pass in 1939 because in 1938, the Democratic Party was um, accused of basically using Democratic operatives uh, to, uh, to take office. And it was last re-upped in 2012 under Barack Obama. And as a matter of fact, James Comey, FBI director, was uh, accused of violating the Hatch Act when he sent the email or the memo to Congress regarding uh, Hillary Clinton that was found uh, within the Anthony Weiner documents. So, uh, it, so it, it, it's the Hatch Act is used on a regular basis, or at least people are accused of violating the Hatch Act on a regular basis. I understand to some degree why it was put in place, uh, obviously to protect the sanctity of uh, of government uh, when it comes to constituents having someone who is an independent thinker that would best represent them. Um, but it does seem like DOD and uh, other people, uh, the unintended consequence of the Hatch Act is leading to a depleted level of intelligence in individuals running for office. And I think that has to be changed. All right, let's move on.
The next email comes from Faith Plummer, which is my favorite name of all time because it sounds like she's a plumber and she shows up and then everyone's like, where are your tools? And she's like, don't even worry about it. I unclog toilets with prayer. She's the Faith Plumber. I love her. Um, all right. She writes in, Dear Ben, I'm a big fan of Abe Lincoln's Top Hat and last podcast. You and Marcus and everyone else on CCR do great work and you all make my work weeks a little brighter. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to do that. And I love to hear that. Uh, that being said, uh-oh, that being said, I just have one small correction for you. The new CIA director's name is Mike Pompeo, not Tom Pompeo. I live in Kansas, and it is hard to know Mr. And it is not hard to know Mr. Pompeo's name as he is a congressman for Kansas. This is so funny because I, I re-listened to that episode. That was the last episode, uh, which I thought was pretty good. Kind of a fun episode there. And I did say Tom Pompeo, and it's because every time I think of Mike Pompeo, I think of Tom Tancredo because Pompeo and Tancredo, they just stick in my brain. So they're interchangeable first names. So, yes. Mike Pompeo, that is correct. It's not Tom Pompeo. Tom Pompeo sounds like a bad B actor with big bush hair or something. Uh, so, yes, I do understand that. Thank you so much. Uh, she does go on. She says, Mr. Trump has also tapped Chris Kobach. He's another Kensinian, Kensinian uh, to work on immigration policy. Kobach is the architect of the infamous Arizona immigration law, SB 1070. Kobach and Pompeo are arguably two of the most hated men in Kansas, especially in more liberal, left-leaning circles, outside of our current governor, Sam Brownback. Thank you for everything you do, and keep up the great work. Sincerely, Faith. Well, thank you so much, Faith. And i got to tell you, yeah, that Arizona immigration law, oh, my goodness, really atrocious. And, uh, and now seeing a similar thing that might be adapted on a national level, is uh, is disheartening to say the least. I understand Arizona is a border uh, state. I know they have immigration issues that are different than Wisconsin or, uh, you know, Indiana or, uh, you know, New Hampshire. But um, at the same time, you have to have a humane response to these problems. Um, that's, that's the role of good government is to take difficult problems, respond as humane as possible, and attempt to alleviate uh, the issue. Um, and I don't think they're doing a great job in Arizona with their more hard-lined approach. But of course, email me if you think they are, and we'll also get to that. Uh, this next episode, uh, this next uh, email, rather, comes from Brendan Rome, who is also, that's a great name. It sounds like a, a Chippendale or someone who would fight a lion in a room. Um, his message is, it's entitled Top Hat, Populist apples and populist oranges. Oh, that's kind of fun. We kind of have a citrus thing happening here. I always enjoy that. He writes, Hi, Ben. Good work with Marcus on soberly analyzing the events of the world that seems to have gone completely mad. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. You know, we're trying our best to maintain... Um, you know, a little perspective and, and to not get too emotionally um, uh, exhausted, quite frankly, because, you know, people are, especially just reading these emails, you know, that have gotten over the weeks and, and now, I mean, people are really horrified. And so thank you so much for listening. And that's really what we're trying to do. Basically be the opposite of Alex Jones, uh, because we don't want to be full of lies and we don't just want people to... Uh, to watch us for entertainment reasons, but then slowly, like I, like I say all the time, a frog boiling, uh, you know, a frog in warm water uh, gets heated up. That's what happened with Alex Jones. Everyone just said, oh, he's a fun showman. 
Uh, same thing with Donald Trump. He's a showman. I mean, even I was sucked into his um, performances. I mean, as a performance, um, as a fan of political performance, I mean, it was it was jaw dropping what uh, what Trump was doing, and certainly with the things that Alex Jones um, does, it's very entertaining. But now we live in a world where that's mainstream thinking, and I think that's a little bit dangerous. Okay, so he goes on. However, I have had one major issue slash question about you equating Bernie Sanders' left populism with Trump's right populism. Okay. As someone who has self-identified as someone who who has self-identified as a socialist, I thought it odd that you would equate Sanders and Trump's populisms when it comes to trade and protectionism. In essence, Sanders' populism is that of the demos, the people as the active agents, citizens, subjects, and participants in public affairs. This populism is one that brings together desiring persons into an equatable society for a people. This isn't anti-internationalist per se. On the contrary, it's internationalist because it accounts for all in spite of borders, states, and economic inconveniences. I opposed TPP because of the power it would have given corporations over the sovereignty of states and communities. I'm more favorable to NAFTA because it brings us closer to our neighbors, to the north and the south. The blame for depressed wages and gutted communities goes not to open borders, but rather should go to the capitalists who have waged open war against the working and middle classes and have brought off and who have bought off the Republican and Democratic parties. And there's no denying they're bought off. That's a that's a great point. On the other hand, Trump's faux populism is that of the ethnos, an imagined community of Americans, red, white, and male, that is inherently exclusionary. By invoking this as the will of the people, he is able to aggressively consolidate corporate power power and wealth to himself and his cronies. The protectionist trade is a throwback to the Republican Party from 1880 to 1920 and is ill-suited to the realities of our economy today. His meetings with CEOs and promises of economic support in exchange for good American jobs smacks of Mussolini's fascist corporatism. Everything for the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. Anyways, I've always really, uh, I've been really enjoying your podcast, Able Against Top Hat, Roundtable of Gentlemen, and especially the last podcast on the left. I'm really looking forward to you, Marcus and Henry, coming to St. Paul uh, for the live show as well. If you need anyone to help out with transport or to the shows, you guys are, are uh, there's a show you guys are around the Twin Cities, let me know. All the best, Brendan. Thank you so much, Brendan. And yes, well, I'll take you up on that offer. Uh, I'm, I'm done with, apparently Uber is now... Uh, for, for this week, no one is taking Uber, so I will be taking Brendan as opposed to Uber. Um, so thank you so much. And very interesting points and great points uh, regarding Donald Trump versus Bernie Sanders and the populist message that both of them espoused on the campaign trail. And again, as we talk about on a regular basis, uh, you are articulate and intelligent. I think a lot of Americans uh, got caught up in the economic populism. Of, of Bernie Sanders. When he lost um, the nomination, I, I do think they started sniffing around Mr. Trump and they found a, uh, a politician who was speaking in a similar fashion about, uh, you know, the economic disparity uh, in the country. And of course, Donald Trump promised to fix it. And there's no way that's not going to happen. Um, so great question or great statement. Thank you so much, Brendan. Um, all right. This next one comes from Dustin. 
and it's just it's it's titled Able Against Top Hat. So that's kind of an exciting one. That's it's simple enough to to know that it was for the show. Uh, he says, Ben, I have a comment on Obamacare. I work in a hospital. No one ever talks about how the ACA has affected hospitals. Ever since the beginning of the ACA, we have done double the surgeries that we did in the past, and we are making half of what we made in the past. I'm not against people having insurance, but it has to be viable for those providing the services. Thanks, Dustin Marciniak. Okay, interesting. So he's having. So Dustin, you have a problem with the uh, with the uh, ACA, and I would love to hear how you would like to solve that because that's the problem with these federal laws in, in a nation of fifty states. Uh, the, the, there are small, again, unintended consequences that go with these laws, unforeseen outcomes that occur from these laws that um, that need to be fixed. And and I do think that the Affordable Care Act, uh, the strange thing with Donald Trump, he has promised. Everyone is going to have insurance. I don't know exactly how he's going to achieve that goal. Um, I think that Rand Paul actually has proposed a fairly decent uh, replacement for Obamacare. Uh, because, of course, if they repeal it and they don't have a replacement, uh, they are gone and, and gone for a long time. Uh, the Republican Party, that is. Uh, you know, um, Rand Paul offering $5,000 for in, a, in an HSA. And if you do have, if you were diagnosed uh, with an ailment, you have two years uh, where you cannot be denied insurance. Um, after that, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, you're screwed. Um, but there are some good aspects to Rand Paul's plan. But the uh, the Republicans, you know, they have to figure it out. And uh, and that's a great, great statement. So thank you so much for sharing your personal life experience with us uh, regarding that. All right. This one is, uh, this is an exciting one. It's, it's from Jacob Moffat. And it's called third-party divisiveness. All right, Jacob writes, Hey, Ben, I'll try to keep this one short. Have you noticed that the two major third parties, one of whom the socialists, I'd argue, hasn't really fully formed as of yet, have adopted the same divisive tactics as our main political parties? I don't understand why there's hatred between libertarians and, social and socialists of all flavors. It seems like it makes sense in the main two parties. The GOP is guided by a theocratic right to believe in cutting government spending for social programs. The Democrats are guided by a softer approach on, to social issues, but at the expense of padding their pockets and the pockets of their friends. There's a clear mechanic of one doing something the other doesn't like. With libertarianism and socialism, it doesn't seem like we've had the time to establish any political boundaries to hit back and forth across. On the socialist side, I identify as a socialist Democrat for the record, there is a want for better social justice, wealth equality, and better government programs. On the libertarian side, there is a desire for less government overreach, more fiscally conservative spending, and more ownership for the citizenry of their own country. I don't see these viewpoints as diametrically opposed as Republicans versus Democrats. So it boggles my mind the arguments I see where a libertarian will hit on Bernie, for example, uh, will shit on Bernie, for, uh, for, for instance, or where a socialist will shit on Gary. But don't we essentially want the same things? One, better ownership over our country. Two, less incentive for corruption in Washington. Three, more oversight against corruption in Washington, though that's arguable, uh, but it's something both sides have espoused. Four, an end to two-party politics, as well as the unseating of the established power bases. Five, drug law reform. And six, more power 
to the voting base. It seems like when it comes to libertarians versus socialists, there's a divide. But honestly, the only difference I see between them is how much money are you willing to spend? And is this really the job of the government? We're essentially fighting the same fight with a few disagreements, if that makes sense. We may not agree on the destination, but it seems like we all know the road we need to take. What gives? Why do, why do this third-party heavy election cycle become not just Trump versus Hillary, but Sanders versus Johnson. I blame um, media. I, I think the way that they covered uh, Bernie Sanders, um, specifically, obviously, um, in the beginning, laughing at him and not treating him as a serious candidate, and then trying to stoke fears that he's too far of a leftist. Uh, he would put our nation, he would make our nation look like Castro's Cuba, uh, things like that. Um, I think they, they don't want... Uh, the, the powers that be are great, greatly invested. Uh, the media is greatly invested in the powers that be. And they, they are, as we saw with Debbie Wasserman Schultz stepping down from the DNC and the, the, the void, uh, the vacuum being immediately filled by Donna Brazil. As we see uh, on Fox News, Katie McFarland, who I did Red Eye with many, many times, she is now working with Donald Trump. John Bolton, Ambassador Bolton, was up, uh, I believe, for a defense position. Uh, there is, a, there is a, a pipeline from media to government, and the media does not want any of these outlying parties to have any say whatsoever because at the end of the day, it would hurt their own individual bottom line. Third-party candidates also get demonized by one side or the other for theoretically costing an election or swick, you know, swinging the election to, to one side or another. For example, in 1992 with Ross Perot, he got roughly, I believe it was 17 million votes. It might have been 19 million votes. Didn't get one electoral vote, so I think that's a bit of a problem. But a lot of Republicans blamed him for giving the election to Bill Clinton, who won with 42% of the vote. Nonsense. It would have taken upwards of 70% of the people who voted for Ross Perot to then vote for H.W. Bush in order to give the, the win to H.W. Bush. There's a massive misconception that the people out there who go and vote for third-party candidates would naturally then vote for the person that, that lost, but in, in the people that voted for the person who lost assume that it had they not voted for that third-party candidate, they would have voted for their candidate, and their candidate would have won. No, that's not the way it works. Gary Johnson supporters very well might have you know, voted for Jill Stein. Gary Johnson, this is you know, now getting to this election cycle. Gary Johnson, of course, be demonized uh, for, for taking votes away in, in, in Michigan and places like that. There is no saying that, that Gary Johnson didn't hurt Trump. It's possible that Trump would have won by a larger margin. Uh, had individuals not voted for Gary Johnson, specifically being more on the libertarian, uh, being a libertarian, they they do have a Republican uh, tilt to them in many places. So I think uh, third parties get it from the media. Uh, they get it from they get it from the, obviously the two major parties, and then they also get it from individuals who feel upset when uh, one of their members of a large party loses, and they're easily scapegoated. Same thing uh, with Ralph Nader. All right, let's move on. This next email comes from Caitlin Garcia, and uh, it's a bit of a doozy. It's a bit long. There's a lot of Russian names in it, so I will butcher every single one of those um, the same way that the, but the, the Russians are butchering people in the Ukraine. 
Uh, oh my goodness. All right. So, uh, Caitlin, thank you so much for writing. It starts off, the email starts off with, uh, I enjoyed your latest episode of Abelingen's Top Hat and the brief conversation on Russia. I just had to point something out, especially if you're going to discuss the topic in greater detail during a later episode. You should, without further nuance, the, the Putin is trying to revive the Soviet Union line. That's something I say on a regular basis. Uh, Putin is trying to revive the Soviet Union, and this is where she takes some uh, some issue. This risks implying, at least to me, political ideology has something to do with it. I do not think that it was necessarily your approach, uh, but nonetheless, it takes away from your argument. Putin's desire to reclaim the power and influence of the USSR is valid. Certainly, he is reestablishing a neo-Stalinist state in Russia right now, but it's more about power, surveillance, and oppression. Russia's war with the Ukraine is essential to understanding what's happening right now, as well as Putin's allegiance to the Orthodox Church. If anything, it's nationalistic mindset which compels policy. It's his nationalistic mindset which compels policy. Recall that, recall that they claimed to defend their Ukrainian brothers when they first began their occupation of parts of Donbass, evoking a shared history. This is what we heard a lot on, uh, you know, on our media side, their brothers. But in Russian media, they refer to them with, with the use of racial slurs and tell Russians that they are Nazis and so on. Putin has been obsessed with the country since day one. I study Russian and I'm traveling to the Ukraine this summer to teach, and I wanted to recommend to you some books um, and some Russian speakers that some Russian speakers have recommended to me. So the books are, and uh, please go out there and buy these books. I certainly will look into it. All the Kremlin's Men by Mikhail Zygar. And uh, basically, uh, this, this book is about uh, how Putin is not the person that we imagine him to be. And uh, how much much of Putin's decision making comes from the influence and the power of struggles of the men that are around him right now, which are ever shifting. This book will provide you a better understanding of the power structure in Russia. So that sounds like a great book to check out all the Kremlin's men. Another book is Nothing is True and Everything is Possible by Peter Palmer Antev. I don't know. It sounds like Palmeranian. And then it just looks like a Russian man. It's P-O-M-E-R-A. N-T-S-E-V. And uh, this talks about his experience working in reality television and how um, Russian media is just completely corrupt and, uh, and distorts the reality. Does it sound like anything familiar, right? Okay. The other book is called Putin's Kleptocracy by Karen Dawisha. And, of course, you know, in our nation now we have a situation where a lot of people believe that Donald Trump stole the election. Uh, people believe we live in a kleptocracy now. Certainly Robert Fitrakis, who we've had on many times, uh, talks about how he believes it's a kleptocracy. Um, so that's absolutely fascinating. A lot of the issues in Russia are currently also wish, uh, wish, uh, um issues in, a, in our own country. Um, all right, so she concludes with, as you can see, it's not criticism, but rather some encouragement. It's an issue close to my heart. You should absolutely talk about Ukraine. Many of the young people who were involved in, the, in Maiden actually joined politics, determined to become the change that they wanted to see. The future of Europe lies in the success of the Ukraine. That's why I'm so proud to be teaching English to children there this summer. Young people are doing everything they can to move the country forward. There are still many, many issues and it will take a long time to make significant progress if they do, but they do believe in the future of Ukraine, and that's inspiring. Thanks for reading. You know that is inspiring. You know, no matter you know the the it is the 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 heart of people, um, 
is always uh, the best thing that comes from these scary situations and these unnerving times. We get to see communities come together and, and people be braver than we ever thought they, they could be. And that is one of the positive side effects of having a, um, a situation like we're in right now where there's a lot of just uncertainty and we don't know uh, what's going to happen next because we don't elect presidents anymore, apparently. We, we elect straight-up dictators. I am, you know, that's a whole other thing we'll talk about on the next episode with Molly Neffel. The expansion of executive powers, I think, is a terrible, terrible thing. And uh, it started many started with W, and uh, it's just been getting worse from there. All right. We have one from Natalie here. Okay, this is all about Title IX. I talked about this briefly. This is the program um, that is uh, implemented in many, many uh, college course, or in colleges all around the place. So Title IX Philly girl. We met in Philly. Hey, Natalie, nice to talk to you again. Um, she says, hi, Ben. I meant, to send this, I meant to send this days ago, but I've been sick and swamped at work since classes are resuming, so it's been a week. Okay. I heard you like a short and blurby, so I tried my best, but I wanted to shed some light on how I handle Title IX cases. I work for a four-year four university in Maryland and wear many hats. Oh, that's kind of fun. I process everything from very trivial to serious cases. I cannot speak on behalf of every university institution or system, only the one I work for, but I hope that they follow the same protocol and practices that we do. With all the Title IX cases, we practice extreme confidentiality for both parties. A case will rarely, if ever, leave our office. Faculty and staff outside of our office will not have access to any of the records, nor do we discuss anything in regards to the case ongoing or closed. We cannot report to state or local authorities without consent of the complainant, except in very few cases, i.e. child abuse, uh, you know, things like that. We release identifying information only if it is in the interest of the universal university safety. Judicial action is taken against the other party only if there is a preponderance of evidence after an investigation. Ultimately, this often relies on the cooperation of the complainant. What we usually do is offer interim measures to, to the complainant, complainant Moving the student to a new class, to a new residence hall, escort services, uh, you know, things like that. Provide, provide options, resources, and procedures for immediate ongoing assistance, medical attention, and counseling. We do not tolerate retaliation against either party, and we offer amnesty for student conduct policies. At the university I work for, we don't see as many cases of on-campus sexual misconduct that we do off-campus. Title IX has had a positive impact on transgender accommodations and acceptance on our campus all right so very interesting uh i was simply concerned about due process and things like that but that's great um natalie uh it's, it's, i'm happy to hear that title IX is working out on your university um all right and we'll we'll close it up here with a final email now this one is from let's see jared erickson the subject matter is too much kissel question mark question mark question mark Hi, Ben. That's what he says. Hi, Ben. Fun story. So I absolutely love last podcast on the left since I'm kind of a conspiracy theory nut and I listen religiously. That led me to start listening to Abelgan's Top Hat, which I also subscribe to. Furthermore, I've got a bit of a libertarian crush on Kat Timpf, so, so I listen to her podcast weekly as well. So last week I found myself listening to, la to the latest last podcast, then a Top Hat from earlier in, in the week, then Kat's podcast that featured you as a guest. All said and done, it was almost three hours of Kissel. I, of course, enjoyed the content, and I generally find the timbre of your voice to be quite soothing, but my, but my good, three hours of anything is a lot to ask. 
All of that being said, I greatly appreciate the work you do, especially on Abe Lincoln. In such a divisive political climate, I love how you keep it civil, reasonable, and logical. Keep up the great work, Fox News scum. Thank you, Jared. That's very nice. Um, all right. Well, that's it. So this is the first episode of the Dumpster Fire Chats, and uh, we'll keep them going. I think I want to do this every week. So thanks so much for listening. You can find my email at benk721 at gmail.com. Um, please, uh, you know, try to keep them a little short, and, uh, but uh, I, I can't wait to hear more uh, of your stories and your opinions and things like that and share them with the listeners. So you can find me on Twitter at Ben Kissel. You can find Marcus Parks at Marcus Parks and on Instagram at Marcus Parks. I am at Instagram at Ben Kissel one. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com.